0: We come to one of the most interesting stories of Joseph. Um, <laughs> how many of you like a good revenge movie? You all do, right? Yeah, a good revenge movie. Somebody who is out there and takes vengeance on the evildoers, right? Uh, one of the most popular movies in all of history, actually, is called The Avengers. And it's out right now, and, but, but they're avenging for good things, Right? We all like this good vengeance movie. Sometimes they turn out well, and sometimes they turn out not so well. And people make a lot of money making these kinds of movies. Typically, they star people like Mel Gibson or Liam Neeson or Keanu Reeves. And they're typically rated R, so I can't give you any more uh, illustrations than that. But there's not just movies. It's also uh, books, right? Count of Monte Cristo. Have you read that? That is vengeance from page one to the very end. Um, Hamlet. Hamlets are all about vengeance. Wuthering Heights. There's book after book after book that is about somebody getting wronged, making things right. Why do we like these kinds of stories? What do you think? Why do we like seeing somebody that's been dealt a bad hand get even with the people that have dealt him the bad hand or her the bad hand? Why do we like those stories? What? Justice, yeah, some sense of justice. And, and why do we like the justice? We like it because the victim gets even. Even though they can't get their loved ones back. I mean, justice is such a fluid term. You, 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 they may not get their money back. They may not get their loved ones back, but they get even. And there's a part of us, our fallen nature, that loves the idea when we see somebody that's been treated poorly get even. Now, I got to tell you this. Jesus would have made one terrible movie producer. Because Jesus was not about vengeance at all. He was exactly the opposite. You know, there's no brilliant lines that Jesus came up with like, make my day. There's no brilliant lines like, revenge is best served cold, right? We like that. Jesus doesn't say anything like, here, this is from Muhammad Ali. You kill my dog, you better hide your cat right? That's, uh, that's, those are vengeful kinds. Of, Jesus doesn't say anything like that. Jesus says exactly the opposite. He says stuff like, turn the other cheek. Oh, you know that one, right? You didn't know the Muhammad Ali one, but you knew that one. That's probably a good thing, actually. Or how about this one? Peter comes and he says, listen, somebody does me wrong. I forgive them seven times. That's pretty good, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 you're, you're, you're close but still so far off. He said, if somebody comes to you and asks for forgiveness, you don't forgive them seven times, you forgive them 70 times times seven, which doesn't mean 490 times. It means there's no end to the times that somebody gets forgiveness. Jesus would not have done well in Hollywood. In fact, in Romans 12, Paul reminds us of the heart of Jesus Christ when he says, beloved, Read with me, if you would, please, because this this is so hard to read at this point. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, (laughs) I'm glad you're sitting down, because here's why Jesus would never make it in Hollywood. If your enemy is hungry, what do you do, church? Feed him. If he's thirsty, what do you do? Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. It doesn't mean that you're doing it a spite. It means that what you do is demonstrating the grace of God in a fallen world that only knows vengeance. And that's hard to ignore. Like having a pile of coals that are hot on your head is hard to ignore. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, probably a lot of you just want to leave right now because that's enough, right? That's a tall order. Because if I were to take a survey, my guess in here would be to this question, how many of you have been wronged? We'd get a lot of answers. Joseph has been wronged. Joseph has experienced jealousy, discouragement, abandonment by God, abandonment by others, betrayal. The list goes on and on and on. In each, each situation, he makes the most of his situation. True, he's, he's tried to do the right thing. He's tried to follow God's way of living. Even though Romans wasn't written yet, he's still got the gist of it, right? Right? And he's trying to do the right things. But now his brothers are in front of him, begging for their lives. He's done the little diddly with the, you know, the little cup in the bag and all that stuff just to find out what kind of character these guys really had. Because 22 years ago, they had bad character. Beat up their brother, threw him in a well, sold him into slavery. I'd say that's really bad, wouldn't you? That's like more than just not liking somebody that's wishing they were dead. They sold him for some some coins, and he went into slavery, and they thought, that's it. We've rid ourselves of Joseph. But now Joseph is there. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. I'm sure they're not hard to recognize. You see these guys just kind of fighting with each other, even on their way in to see Joseph. And he goes, I can't believe it. They're back. And with all this new power that he has, he's second to Pharaoh himself. He is a king in Egypt. He can go after all of those who have lied about him and hurt him. He can go after his brothers. He can go after Potiphar. He can go after Potiphar's wife. He can go after the jailer that kept him him in prison. How about this? He could go after the cupbearer because he's got a bad memory, right? Did you forget about the cupbearer? I'll remember you. Two years he rots in jail after that. He can go after all these people, and Pharaoh would have said, whatever Joseph wants is fine. He's the second most powerful guy in Egypt. But he doesn't have a list of all the people that he's going to rain vengeance on. Instead, he does the job right in front of him to do. So the question we have now is, what will he do to the very people who started all this mess in the first place? Now that his brothers are asking for forgiveness, they've been caught red-handed stealing. He, he put the cup in the bag. It's in Benjamin's bag. Sent them out to go back home. Sent his own army after them. They take the cup, they, or they take the bag stamp, tear it apart from oldest to youngest. They find the cup in Benjamin's sack. He's caught red handed. Benjamin's gone, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I, I don't know. The brothers are going, Benjamin, why? Why would you do this? You forget how scary that guy was? Why did you do this? And they have to be silent the whole way home. All the whole way back to Egypt. Now they throw themselves in front of Joseph. They do not know who he is. They throw themselves in front of Joseph, and instead of fighting and defending themselves, they simply beg for mercy. Now, what should Joseph do? What comes natural? At this point, not only have, are, Joseph knows they're guilty of what they did to him. But now he's, ca- he's caught them, even though he set it up, caught them red-handed, stealing. He can do anything to them that he wants to. Why doesn't he do what's natural? Will he seek vengeance or will he continue to see the bigger picture that God is drawing, even now when he has a chance for revenge? Will Joseph blame these brothers for all of these lost years? He lost his good years. You know your good years? Between, what is that, 20 and 50? <laughs> is, that, is that your good years? <laughs> for Joe, for, that was for me. I'm on the downside now. But those, those are all gone. All his good years are gone. He's wasted them, and these brothers have taken them from him. Will Joseph can blame these brothers for the years of pain, or will Joseph give God the benefit of the doubt? Let's dive in. We are uh, in verse 1 of chapter 45 in the book of Genesis. If you'd like to turn there or look at it on your uh, electronics. Verse 1 says this, And Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. He cries so loud, everybody hears him in the palace. That's loud weeping. We're told three times that Joseph cried. First time he cries, he jails them. The second time he cries, he tests them. And the third time he, he cries right here. What is he about to do? Now, let me just set this up just a little bit more for you. If you were to ask Joseph the day before these brothers showed up, Joseph, what kind of character do your brothers have? What would his answer be? Before they show up, before he sees them again, after 22 years, if you were to say to him, Joseph, what kind of brothers did you have growing up for the first 17 years of your life? What were your brothers like? What would his answer be? Go ahead, this is where you get to, to say. Nicest guys you'd ever want to have. Have them over a tailgate party. They're a blast. They're kind and generous, and right? No. Give me some words to describe that he would have said his brothers were. Bad. They were bad, all right, bad. Yeah, terrible, what? Jealous, definitely jealous. Cold, <laughs> it's so cold. Yes, that might be my favorite one, cold. They didn't even, they, they didn't even take the, 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 the garment, that multicolored garment, that, that garment that Joseph wore, they didn't even take it home to their dad. They sent it UPS or FedEx, whichever was cheaper. They dipped it in blood and sent it home with a courier. Hey, hey uh, your son sent it home. They said, does this belong to your son? Cold. And for 22 years, they've kept a secret. Cold. Yeah, he wouldn't have had nice things to say about these guys. I, I would agree with you. They're murderers. They're, they're betrayers. They're lowlifes. They're scum. But here's what I find amazing is that Joseph's heart was so in tune with God that he was willing to believe the unbelievable. Maybe his brothers might have changed. Verse 3. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And we talked about this a little last week. Joseph is like a king in Egypt, second most powerful to Pharaoh. And he's having a nervous breakdown in front of all of these brothers. They're probably thinking to themselves, this is a bad day to come to this place, right? They they thought they were going to die. They were dismayed at his presence. But Joseph, I think, is beginning to believe again. He's beginning to believe that God's power is bigger than his circumstances, than Joseph's present circumstances. Remember, he gave his son the name Manasseh, which means, I'm done with my family. Do you remember that? My family's gone. I'm done with them. And he gave the next son, Reuben, which means, I'm looking forward to life in Egypt, my new life in Egypt. He has washed his hands clean of these brothers. That's not the name of the second brother. Ephraim, thank you very much. But what I find interesting here in this, in this passage of Scripture is that after he reveals himself to his... Uh, in, in the sentence where he reveals himself to his brother, what's the first thing that he says? Is my father still alive? He's starting to believe that God can change the hardest of hearts, and he's opening his heart again to believe that maybe his life with his family is still possible. His brothers have passed every test that he did. They came back for Simeon when Joseph threw him in prison. They didn't kill Benjamin, uh, which I'm sure Joseph was surprised about, demonstrating that they, in fact, might actually love this brother, even though this brother, like Joseph, were born of the same woman to Jacob. Remember all of this? If you haven't been tracking with us, there's an interesting backstory there. They've offered themselves on behalf of the other. Don't kill the, don't kill the other person. Kill me instead. Take us into slavery. These brothers who have heartlessly beat him and sold him for money are now offering themselves up on behalf of the other. Verse 4. They don't believe him. So Joseph said to his brothers in verse 4, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, Listen, guys, I am your brother Joseph. They have not told him the name of their other brother. So they have to be thinking to themselves, how does he know Joseph's name? I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And nobody knows that either, except for the brothers. And they're going to take that secret to the grave. Now, here's the big moment in our morning this morning. What do you think the next thing these brothers thought would be out of Joseph's mouth? What do you think the next thing they would have heard out of Joseph's mouth at this point? He's having a nervous breakdown in front of them, weeping so loud, everybody in the, in the kingdom can hear him cry. He reveals himself, I'm the guy you guys sold into slavery. Is dad still alive? What do you think is the next thing these brothers think they're going to hear? Oh, those are tears of joy. We're <laughs> sold into slavery. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they probably didn't think those were tears of joy. Or maybe the tears of joy like, yeah, time to get even with you guys. What do you think those tears, they thought those tears meant? They probably thought this guy knew everything that they did and now they're going to pay for it. They're going to die. We, we cry for a variety of different reasons. We cry tears of relief, tears of sadness, tears of anger and vengeance, tears of joy. i got to think these guys didn't think these were tears of joy. They had to think like, these were tears like, thank God my day has come. And your day has come too. What goes around comes around. Right? Make my day. Verse 5. This is the next thing that comes out of Joseph's mouth. And do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That's the kicker. I want to tell you the difference between a victim versus an overcomer. We live in a world that will get you to believe you are a victim on every level of life. Why? Because if you can believe you're a victim, you've got an excuse for fill in the blank. You've got an excuse for failing in life. You've got an excuse for not getting far in life. You've got an excuse for holding a grudge. You've got an excuse for hating somebody. You've got an excuse for doing a poor job at your, at your job. You've got an excuse for anything. If you can believe that you are a victim... You don't have to try really hard. You can always blame it on somebody else, whoever made you the victim, because it's their fault. Today's message I'm very excited about because it's all about the difference between the victim versus the overcomer. The question at this point in the story is what card will Joseph play? Will he play the card of the victim or will he pay, play the card of the overcomer? The card of the victim is self-loathing and punishment. It's where, it's where I've been done poorly. Life has treated me poorly, so that's why I am who I am. You live among people like this constantly. In fact, politicians will put you into this box so they can get your vote. This is, this is normal in our lives today. And I just want to take a moment and just kind of lay this story out for you and let the Spirit of God pry the door open to your heart and maybe let you consider some things through this story so that you can transfer from victim to overcomer. Because here's what I found. Victims hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. They don't mean to. It's not the first thing they think about when they get up. It's just there. Their hearts have become so damaged they can't help but to do things that end up damaging others. This is the road the victim mindset travels. And the challenge for us, church, is will we live in the present or live for the future? And these brothers were living in the present. They thought to themselves, Joseph is a pain. Get rid of Joseph. Present living. They thought to themselves, cry in front of Joseph, beg for mercy, live in the present, get off easy. Joseph is thinking about the future. God has given him a dream, a vision about what he would become. He didn't know why, he didn't know how it's going to play out, but he remains faithful for 22 years of crud. So that at the point where God needs to use him, he has developed the heart of an overcomer. Those looking for revenge live in the present. Their instinct is to wish for vengeance. They stew on what just happened. They can't sleep because they can't let it go. They hope bad things will happen to those who have hurt them. If you ask them, who has treated you poorly? They don't need five minutes to come up with a name. It's there. Hurt people carry hurt with them. And it's so painful. They don't, again, they don't mean to. It's just what happens when you dwell on the present and you think about your life as the here and now always. Because if you've been wronged, you've got to be made right. Here and now. An overcomer is different. They live for the future. And those who live for the future let God run his own timetable. They give God the benefit of the doubt. Now let that sink in just for a minute. They give God the benefit of the doubt they believe that God will make all things right eventually. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually. Why? Because God is a good God. Their faith allows them to wait on the Lord. And if you want to transfer from from a victim to an overcomer, you need a release switch. I'm going to give you a release switch you've all watched the movies where the water is filling up this this container right and there's one hero that has to dive through and swim 500 yards so that he can pull a lever and the water can go out of the room and everybody can breathe again right it's like in every single movie that's ever been made right so you've seen movies like this I'm going to give you a release switch so that you you don't have to swim through 500 meters of water. But Jesus Christ has given us a means where we can live as overcomers. We do not have to live as victims any longer. This is your release valve. You ready? You have to believe that God will make all things right, you have to believe it to your core. I don't know what's happened to you and I don't know how you've become a victim and every one of us could play the victim card pretty easily because of things in our lives but we have to operate church like we believe we serve a God who is an overcomer and who will help us overcome. Even if you have to believe against all odds, we must give God the benefit of the doubt that he will work out all things eventually. Listen, if you need a scripture to back this up, Pick a psalm. (laughs) There's 150 of them, and they're all basically the same. They all basically say this. I've been wronged. God is right. I'll wait on the Lord. It's all the way through there. Uh, Granted, it's not all 150, but it's pretty close. (laughs) Here's one, just one out of Psalm 10. Arise, O Lord God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? In other words, I can do whatever I want and nobody's going to hold me into account. But you do see, for you get this church talking to God, you do see, you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. You know what that means? God's keeping copious notes. The instinct of an overcomer is forgiveness and optimism. Not an optimism that doesn't make sense, but an optimism that believes God can do the impossible. God can redeem any situation. And some people have been put through some pretty tragic situations, and even in this room. Ways that you've grown up, people you've grown up with, things that you've had to go through, Every one of us have been through some pretty terrible moments, and yours might be at the top of the list. But you've got to be optimistic to the point where you give God the benefit of the doubt and believe that God was with you the entire time, protected you the entire time, brought you through the entire time to make you into the person He needs you to be today so that you can, instead of being a victim that hurts others, you can be an overcomer who helps others. These things come into our lives so that we can learn God helps us through so that we can help others through. This is an optimism that believes that God really does remember us. And this is exactly what Joseph said. In fact, he said this four times. Four times in the next few chapters and three times in this chapter alone, Joseph says this phrase, God sent me before you. God sent me before you. He didn't say, you guys sent me here. You screwed me up. You sold me into slavery. You did this. And, and look, look what I, look at me now. <laughs> what do you think of me now? You know, look at me now. I can, I can crush all of you with a little thumb I could take care of. Doesn't say any of that. No vengeance. He says, instead, he looks at God and he says, God has put this together. God has sent me Before you three times in this chapter alone now listen God's plan might require you to be uncomfortable for a while forgotten for a while hurt for a while but listen never forgotten (laughs) never forgotten and always because God has a greater plan for Joseph the greater plan was the salvation of all of Israel for you you may not know the answer for years in fact you may not ever know the answer But God has a plan. And this is why overcomers always give God the benefit of the doubt. Look at the benefit of the doubt Joseph gives to God. Verse 6. He explains to the brothers For the famine has been in the land these past two years, and there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Five more years of famine to come. And God sent me before you. Here you go again. Why? To preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Now, hang on a second. Joseph said, I have been sent here for for you. Like, that's crazy talk, right? God has sent me here before you so that I could protect you. So that I could bless you. So that I could preserve for you, to keep you alive. I'm here to save your families. Now, again, did these guys deserve this? (laughs) No. They've been hiding a lie from their dad whose heart has been breaking for 22 years. But Joseph gives them way more than they deserve. Listen, welcome to the cross. Like if you like this story, you're gonna really like the story of the cross. Joseph went through hell to preserve a remnant that would survive the famine and carry on the name of his father, Israel. Jesus went through hell to preserve a remnant for his father, too. And so he goes again, verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Can you imagine this light coming on for Joseph? Can you imagine, like, it's like the cartoon, right? Ding! Joseph has a breakthrough moment. He decides not to play the victim. Joseph gives God the gra- gives, gives grace to these brothers, and Joseph gives God the benefit of the doubt. Listen, if you were asked Joseph a day after this, Joseph, who put you in prison? Who do you think you would say? Come on, you know it. You can say it. no lightning bolts here. Who put him in prison? God did. Who got him down to Egypt? God did who put him as a slave in Pharaoh's house or in Potiphar's house God did. Now that's that's like borderline crazy talk, right? That is an is an aspect of the heart of an overcomer because they see things on this grand plane that maybe God knows something we don't know. If Joseph didn't go to Egypt, he could never have ended up in Potiphar's house, who lied about him to get him to go to prison, where he met this this guy that forgot about him for two years, so that he could eventually be remembered in front of Pharaoh, and he could be brought out to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Explain to me how that could have happened any other way. Couldn't have. Had to happen that way. So Joseph is looking at these brothers and saying, don't blame yourself. It wasn't you who sent me here. It was God. That's crazy, isn't it? I wonder if we were able to look at life that way, how different our attitudes would be. It wasn't you who sent me here. It was God. And then he goes on. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house to rule over the land of Egypt. Yet it's it's still here. God has made me father to Egypt. God has put me in this place. It's like Esther. When when Mordecai came to Esther and and, and he said to to Esther, God has put you in a place for such a time as this. If you don't know Esther's story, short read, great read, amazing book. By the way, no one is sure who this Pharaoh is in history. No one is, is terribly confident about who this person is. So, so literally, Pharaoh could be younger than Joseph here because they made Pharaohs out of boys along the way sometime in Egypt. But he may be older. And I don't think what, Pharaoh, what Joseph is saying here is, hey, I'm older than Pharaoh. I'm like a father to Pharaoh. I think what he's saying is, Pharaoh has such great respect for me. He asks me for stuff and looks at me like, like I'm his dad sometimes. And that can only happen if Joseph has a heart of an overcomer, because hurt people can't, can't operate like that. Joseph realized his blessings were intended for a greater purpose. And he definitely saw his position now as influential on Pharaoh so that he can save his family. Verse 9. So he says, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. <laughs> and by the way, Jacob thinks Joseph's dead, right? So this had to be an amazing conversation. Hey, Dad. So here's the thing. (laughs) We just ran into a guy down there. We were calling him a man. We didn't know who he was. Now we know who he is. And apparently, he's Joseph. What? I got this soil thing. I hung it on my wall. The blood's dried on it. I I thank God for Joseph. I miss it. Can you imagine how the conversation went? Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Come down with me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And this is what struck me out of this. And you shall be near me. Isn't that weird? Like, okay, brothers, what I want most of all, go back and hit dad, come back here, and we'll all have houses like right next to each other. Isn't that crazy? You'd think he didn't like these guys a whole lot. Now he's saying, come on back down here. We'll build a little community. We'll hang out. Do s'mores in the backyard. You shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come. For you and your household, all that you have, do not come to poverty. Joseph says, not only do I see this thing through the eyes of God now, but I want you guys right back here. I want you to be living near. This is total surrender to God. Because for people that do us wrong, we can forgive him, but we don't want him living next to us, right? Verse fourteen. Then he fell upon his brother's Benjamin neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. After this his brothers talked with him. Third time weeping was forgiveness, a fourth time weeping here, which was much quieter, didn't fill the whole palace. The fourth time was release and restoration. He loosed the valve. And he was able to breathe. And so were these brothers. No vengeful thoughts. Just hit the release valve. Verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Everyone loves a story like this, right? I wonder if a forgiveness story would draw a biggest crowd as a revenge story. Probably not. I wonder if it's done really well. Verse 17, Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts, go back to the land of Canaan, take your father and your households and come back to me and I will give the best of the land of Egypt. Oh my goodness. And you shall eat the fat of the land and you, Joseph, are commanded to do this, uh, to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Do you think Pharaoh worked with a vengeful individual? No. Do you think Pharaoh's life was better because he worked with an overcomer? Oh, yeah. And do you think Pharaoh's heart was changed because he worked with an overcomer? <laughs> oh, yeah. He said, no, no, no. You're not walking home. Take, take, take some men with you. Take an army with you. Take the wagons. We want to make sure you have enough wagons to get all your family. They're all grown men. They all have families now. We we'll want to make sure you have enough stuff so that you can bring everybody home. We we'll want to make you comfortable. Take your time. Be comfortable. Joseph's attitude now affects the greatest ruler on the planet. There's no one more powerful on the planet than Pharaoh. Pharaoh gives grace to these guys, and probably because he was influenced by Joseph. By the way, what do you think Pharaoh would have, if you had walked up to Pharaoh and said, okay, I want to give you an incident, like Joseph's brothers are going to show up, they threw him into slavery, They, they were bad individuals, but they're going to show up tomorrow. What do you think Pharaoh, what do you think Joseph is going to do to these guys? What do you think Pharaoh would have said? Kill him? Or do you think Pharaoh knew Joseph in a way that maybe not very many people actually operate? I wonder if Pharaoh would have said, you know what? The Joseph I know, he's going to forgive him. This is not normal. Vengeance is addicting. It is not inspiring. Mercy is scary, and it is contagious. And here's the kicker. It's not normal, but it's what everyone desperately wants. <laughs> Mercy is what everybody wants. It's just so hard to give to other people. We want it. We deserve it. We're good people. But to give it to others, that's, that's tough. We all know we need it. Our hearts long for somebody that will believe in us. Our hearts long for somebody that will love us, even if they know our foibles. We long for that. And church, that's what we are here for. We live in a world where vengeance is normal. We are meant to be the light of Christ in the darkness so that when people screw up or are hurt or beaten down by life, they can come to this place and meet a bunch of people that have been given mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace and can't wait to give it to others. That's what the church is for. I don't know what is going on with the church these days, but a lot of churches are not operating this way. Our church, Village Church East, needs to be a place of refuge for the broken, of protection for the wounded, of belief in people that, have, that, that don't get people to believe in them anywhere that they go. We are to be a place where people are loved. We are to be known for our love. This is why in Ephesians 4, talking directly to the church, this is our command, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, Here's your bar, as God in Christ forgave you. And then the next words are this. You know what? Just in case you missed it, therefore, be imitators of who, church? Be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's our mission. It doesn't need to be redefined. You don't need to go to a church that has finally figured it out after 2,000 years or the rest of the church doing it wrong. You just need to get in touch with a God who gives mercy to people who don't deserve it. And then you need to become a church that offers mercy to people who need you to believe in them. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob and they told him <laughs> this had to be hard, right? <coughs> so here's the thing, Dad. Joseph, you remember the brother that, you know, you had 11, you uh, had 12 of us, down one. Well, he's still alive. Joseph is still alive and he's ruler over the land of Egypt. And Joseph's heart became numb for he did not believe them. Can you imagine how long of a ride home it was for these brothers? Like it would have taken them a couple of weeks to get home. And every night around the campfire, they had to be throwing s'mores at each other because they're trying to figure out how are we going to tell dad after 22 years of lying to him, Joseph is still alive. Oh, and by the way, he's a king in Egypt. How is that going to go? And Reuben probably said, I got an idea. And Simeon said, I got an idea. And Benjamin said, I got an idea. And they're probably all arguing with each other until they finally get home and they think to themselves, all we can tell him is the truth. Joseph is still alive and we're idiots. That had to be such a long way home. You know, the more you lie, the longer road it is to come home. They made it really long. Jacob wouldn't be able to grasp this. He was still in the impression Joseph was dead. This is what he says, verse 27. When they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent them to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived and Israel, that's Jacob, Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go see him before I die. Now, one more thing. Jacob also has the opportunity to be vengeful on his sons. I mean, don't they deserve it? Don't, seriously, don't they deserve it? You mean to tell me you've been lying to me for 22 years? You threw him in a pit? You sold him to the Ishmaelites? This sounds like a story out of like uh, like somebody should make this into a musical, right? I can't believe this is actually happening. And instead, he says, You know what? It's enough. Joseph is alive. You guys are morons, but I forgive you. Joseph's brothers always live in the moment, Joseph lived in the dream. So the question to you, church, is this simply, can you see your life as a means to a bigger dream God has for you? Listen, if you knew what God knows, you'd do what God does every time. That's Michael's phrase. I love it. If we knew what God knows, we'd do what God does every time. The problem is we don't know what God knows. So we try and do what we sh- think He should do. You've got to give God the benefit of the doubt. So I need to give God the benefit of the doubt. Believe that God never rests. Here's some ways that you could do that. Believe that God never rests. I don't need to have vengeance if I have utter confidence. God is always up to something. God doesn't lose. I'm on God's side. God's a winning side. I'm on the winning side. Get it? So I just have to believe that God doesn't sleep or slumber. He's always at work. And if you've got a person that you've been praying for for years, and you're thinking to yourself, there, there ain't no cracks in the armor yet. This person is never going to change. Keep praying, because you don't know what God's doing in the background. He doesn't rest. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's always doing something. giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's hard to believe that God can work in some people's hearts. I've met those people. But I'm here to tell you God's greater than their sin. And God's greater than their stubbornness. That's why Jesus would not be a good movie producer. Remember Romans 12, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's keeping track. To the contrary, our job is to feed those who hurt us and to give water to those who harm us. That's so hard, isn't it? Number two, believe that God hasn't stopped working on your behalf. If you can humble yourself to believe that God's plans can't be thwarted, you'll have more confidence to face the future. You might even be able to live with those who have hurt you in the past. Build little houses next to theirs in the land of Goshen. Believe that God hasn't stopped working on you. He loves you more than you could possibly know, and he's working for you. Number three, believe God's plans are better than your own. The people of God are called to surrender their bodies, their hearts, their minds, their emotions, all of it to God. When they asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength all your mind. Everything, everything there is meant for God. God doesn't save you just your soul and you get to keep the rest. God saves you body, soul, spirit. You belong to him. He redeems all of you and he needs all of you to work in sync, believing that his plans are best. People of God submit their bodies and their dreams to God. When a general sends thousands of troops into battle, we don't fault him. We assume he knows some things we don't know. Remember D-Day, all those guys being sent to that beach at Normandy, sent up that beach, and they're all going to die. And and the the, and they kept on coming and they kept on flying out out of the planes and parachuting down and coming in the boats and they just kept dying and they just kept dying and they just until finally they got to the to the ridge and they climbed that ridge and they took that beach and that turned the war. We have to believe that God is way smarter than a general, right? We don't fault a general for putting troops in harm's way because we know they believe. They are in it for a greater good. Soldiers go into battle knowing that they're going to die, but they believe the strategy of the general and they have a dream of freeing the world from evil. So we submit to God dreams and bodies because we believe his plan is greater than our need for comfort or answers. That's tough. You may never get the answer as to why you go through what you go through. But you believe that God has an answer. This is, by the way, the definition of worship. It's not singing songs. The definition of worship is in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your what church? Your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your act of spiritual worship is surrendering this, mind, soul, body, all to him. Last thing I would tell you is this, meet Jesus Christ If you don't know him you think this story is great wait until you hear the story of the cross it's so much better the better Joseph Jesus Christ who gives mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace listen you you live in a world that says you're okay with God you got to know nothing in the Bible says that anywhere nowhere not there in fact it says that when we come out of the womb We live as enemies of God. I know that's really hard to believe for people that have kids like Eliza. I know that's tough. But when we grow up, we only prove that we are enemies of God. And it's only the grace of God that changes us. Ephesians 2 says this, We all lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we're by nature children of what church? nature makes us children of wrath like the rest of mankind but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved god has grabbed us and made us alive and so church it is our job to do the same it is our job to believe in people who have no one else to believe in them It is our job to give mercy to people who are desperately anxious for somebody to show them a little mercy. It's our job to love the ones who are hard to love. It's our job to be Christ in a fallen world. Listen, I know there's some folks who have harmed you and and you may never be able to believe they could change, but God's power can change them. He's always at work. He changed you. he might be able to change them while you're here too. And even if he doesn't, it's our job to be grace upon grace upon grace. Those folks need you to believe in them. It's our obligation to give those who have heard us the benefit of the doubt. That's tough. You may be disappointed if you do this. You may be disappointed, but you'll never go wrong. All right, let's pray. Father, this is a tough one. It's tough because vengeance comes so easy for us. I mean, it comes so quick. My guess is every one of us is going to get out on the road today and have an opportunity to show vengeance to somebody on the road. But in this world where vengeance comes to the natural flesh, so easily you have called us to a greater calling, and that is to show mercy to those who need to be shown mercy, to give grace to those who don't deserve it, to believe in those who no one else will believe in, to be Christ to others. So thank you for believing in us. Thank you for giving mercy to us. Thank you that you you say that if we ask for forgiveness, it comes freely and you do not withhold anything. Thank you that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just. You'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. We don't deserve it, but we accept it freely. Help us, Father, to learn how to do that for others. Help us to believe in those who don't deserve to be believed in. And Father, if there's a, if there's a person here this morning that has a face in their mind of somebody that they need to believe in that may not deserve it or hasn't demonstrated it. Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, give them the grace and the ability and the power to be able to be overcomers, not to play the victim any longer, to be an overcomer because you have been that for us and you give us the power to be that for others. Help us to believe in one another. Help us to love one another. Help us to point others toward the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we want to be vengeful, help us to show mercy. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.